Hi, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo West brand manager. I'm here today with Jeff Quarter. Jeff is a Rosignol Nordic category manager for the United States. He grew up in Faston, Vermont, starting skiing at age three, both Alpine and Nordic. He attended Green Mountain Valley School and UVM, University of Vermont, both playing soccer and ski racing. Jeff is an accomplished elite uh, athlete, having competed at an elite or pro level in soccer and was named to the U.S. Alpine ski team in the early 90s. He has been a former elite and pro level road and mountain bike racer and competitive trail runner. Professionally, Jeff worked as a product developer for run, bike, and ski brands for 15 years and also worked retail in the Nordic ski industry for eight years stone grinding, providing race service and picking skis. He has worked in the Nordic division for Rosignol for the last five years. Jeff lives and works in Park City, Utah with his wife, Lauren, and their 14-month-old daughter, Remy. This podcast is, this interview is a result of email requests that I received. So I do listen, and hopefully this will be popular. Jeff, thank you very much for being with me today. Hey, and how you doing? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it'll be fun. Yeah, for sure it will. Okay, I've got a ton of questions for you that are of a more technical nature, but I'd like to start out by asking you where you grew up and how you started skiing. Uh, I mean, as you said in the intro, you know, I grew up in Vermont. I grew up in, in, a, ski, in a ski resort town. Uh, most people don't know Faston, but some people might know uh, Waitsfield, which is home to Sugarbush Ski Resort and Mad River Glen. Uh, that's where I grew up. Uh, you know, small, small little town, but to have three ski resorts uh, in the kind of in the close proximity. And, you know, at the time we had probably three, di three to four different cross-country touring centers as well. Plus not to mention the Catamount Trail, which is a different association that runs the whole length of the state. And so just lots and lots and lots of opportunities to get outside. So it was, it's a pretty idyllic place for sure. So not many people would know where I'm talking about, but I lived in a cabin way up on the mountain above Moortown, Vermont. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know it very, very well. You know, uh, one of my best friends owns a mountain in Moortown, Vermont. <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about rural Vermont, you know, way oh, up oh, on oh, the yeah. mountain, you know, from, from the, the paved road. I don't remember what the number is, but the paved road that goes next to the, the river. It's Route 100. Yep. Yeah, 100, exactly. It's like 10 or 15 minutes of dirt roads going up and up and up and up. Yeah. And then the, the, the cabin didn't have, you know, normal amenities. Like, we did have electricity, but we didn't have uh, running water for most of the time. And, but I lived there for about a year and a half, which was an awesome experience. So, anyway, I, I, I know the area real well. Yeah, I mean, that, honestly, that's, that's, you know, 20 minutes from where I grew up. So, it's, uh, I know the area very, very well. And uh, back when I was riding bikes a lot, and we would be looking for great, you know, back then before kind of gravel bikes took off uh, on our road bikes, we'd ride all of those dirt roads up there and they were so much fun. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So did you grow up in a ski family? Um, I, I did, you know, both of my, both of my parents uh, were, were ski instructors. Um, that wasn't necessarily their full-time job. They both had like real jobs, uh, but they just, they love skiing. That's kind of what brought us to Vermont in general. My family's originally from New Jersey, uh, but that's kind of what, you know, brought them to Vermont and, uh, or at least my mom. And um, it's just kind of how we've grown up, you know, and uh, kind of a, a testament, not only to both my mom and dad, but 
but really kind of the community where we grew up is, you know, the whole thing is just about like skiing is a very central part of kind of our, our community, our town, um, the whole kind of the, the Mad River Valley as it's called. Uh, and it's just a, you know, it's, I, I formed, you know, lifelong friendships, obviously, uh, but the experiences that it offered me kind of over the years and even still now are tremendous. So, yeah. Super. So Jeff, I know you were named to the U.S. Alpine ski team in the early 90s. Was slalom your best event or how was that? Uh, it was, it was, well, now it's a lifetime ago now. Uh, but yeah, I, I was more of a, what's called a technical skier. So more slalom and giant slalom. Uh, I mean, I did ski all four events. So super G downhill slalom and giant slalom, but uh, I tended to kind of excel in the more, more slalom and giant slalom. So it was, uh, again, it was, it was a lot of fun while it lasted. <laughs> so it's unusual, at least from my perspective, for a person who has achieved such excellence in alpine ski racing to have been a Nordic skier his entire life and to continue to have a, a passion and be very active in Nordic skiing. Yeah, you know, again, it's, it, it, it says something of not, uh, I mean, a lot about my family, but then a lot about where I grew up. Uh, I mean, even the elementary school where I grew up, uh, every Friday in the wintertime, like they do in a lot of mountain towns, you know, we had a half day and then, but we, you know, where a lot of towns or a lot of schools will go, they'll send everybody out alpine skiing for the day or something like that. We used to actually alternate one week was alpine, the next week was cross country. So everybody got exposed to cross country skiing at a very, very early age. Um, and, you know, where my, at least my house is, was located, uh, where my mom still lives, uh, is, you know, there's endless amounts of trails and really, really easy, accessible cross-country skiing out the door. And for, you know, for me and my friends, cross-country skiing, even when we were alpine skiing, was just, it was a way to get outside in the wintertime because we didn't want to be cooped up inside. And, you know, this was uh, before the days of, you know, serious, like 500 channels of television and video games and all that kind of stuff. So all we wanted to do was be outside. Uh, so it was, it was pretty fun, for sure. It wasn't too long ago that skiing was skiing and people didn't split hairs too much about Alpine or Nordic or backcountry or running an A. You know, the person loves skiing, they'd, they'd pick their equipment based on the opportunities available and the conditions and go out. So it's kind of cool to, to hear that. Did you ever go skiing at Ole's Cross Country Center? That's right and, there. Huh? Oh yeah, endless, endless, endless amounts of times. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're still open and uh, they, they're actually a, a Rosignal Touring Center, as a matter of fact. Uh, and no, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I don't, I, I'm sad to say I don't know the guys as well who run it now, but uh, a, a guy, Jim, who used to run it growing up, I, you, I mean, I knew him, I knew his whole family. He was really good friends with my mom. And, and so that's where we would go. And honestly, we would go, we'd go out skiing, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night and just headlamps and go ski around. And it was, it was a blast and still is. Yeah. Is that Jim Dupre? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I used to race as a, as a young junior against him, but I haven't seen him or talked to him in, I don't know, 35 years. But since it, then, Gene Foley managed it for years, and Gene and I were good friends. Or, or friends. Okay, yeah. I didn't know Gene quite as well, but I knew Jim yeah. very well. Yeah. Cool. Okay. How did you start working for Rosignol Nordic? I, so I, I lived in Colorado also for a long time. So uh, like most New Englanders who 
are craving some sunshine but still want some snow, they, they move to the West Coast or move to the West. So whether it's Utah or, you know, or Colorado or Montana or Idaho, anything like that, I uh, just ha happened to land in Colorado. Um, and I, I, I was working for, um, for, a, for a Nordic company there, a Nordic retailer, and got to know the guys who were running the Nordic division at Rosignol at that time really well. I was doing a lot of uh, like high level kind of elite stone grinding um, as well as race service. And they knew that I knew skis very, very well, uh, not only from kind of growing up in a lot of experience, but also just from, you know, I mean, I'd be stone grinding eight to 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and so when you're stone grinding, you learn skis very, very quickly. And so I kind of helped, you know, help the guys, uh, Ryan, who used to run the division, um, who I know you know what very well, yeah. uh, helped him with some, uh, kind of some base quality issues as well as some stone grinding suggestions, you know, for the, for their production and all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of, you know, started a relationship with those guys. I got to know them really, really well. And then when it came time and the timing was right, my wife and I were, were, uh, were really looking to be back in the mountains and not spend so much time in the car really is what it was. Uh, and they came across the radar again and here I am. <laughs> this is a side note, but I, I'm curious to see if you've seen the same thing. From my perspective, the, the Mountain West is full of New Englanders who are mountain crazy and have moved out here and then just spent all day in the, you know, every, every free moment in the mountains. It seems like most of the, the most mountain enthusiastic people like ourselves are, are actually from the East. Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, I, I mean, I, and you know, like you, it's just kind of how that's how you grow up. And it's, it's part of who you are. And, it, you know, I, my wife is from the Midwest, and uh, we have very different views as much as she loves cross country skiing, alpine skiing, backcountry skiing, she's a huge telemark skier. Um, as much as she loves that, it's not really ingrained in her soul like it is with, uh, at least with me. And, you know, I just, I, I can't wait for it to snow. I can't wait for it to get cold. I like my favorite time to go run is in the winter at night when it's dumping snow. And just because there's just something magical about it. Yeah. And uh, you probably didn't know, but I grew up out East. I grew up in Massachusetts, went to school in New Hampshire, yeah. went to Vermont. And um, it's kind of like, you'd always, you're always looking West and it was bigger mountains with, Less traffic generally, and and more sun. You know, it's kind of like well, duh. And so, you know, I I pretty much spend every free moment I have with my family uh, in the mountains, either yeah. summer hiking, biking, you know, skiing, whatever it is. I'm in the mountains, like you. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, same with us. And now, especially with uh, with a, with a, a young daughter who's. Uh, she's a troublemaker for sure. Uh, and she all, honestly, all she wants to do is be outside. So it's, it's great to see that. I don't know whether that's just kind of her personality or whether we're starting to rub off on her. Uh, but it's, it's, it's great to see. And it's a, honestly, it's a big relief <laughs> as well that she likes to be outside as much as we do. So it's fun. Yeah. yeah you wouldn't want to have to choose between spending time in the mountains and your, and your family. That's for sure. No, no, definitely not. Okay. So let's get back to Rossignol. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you describe the brand and company Rossignol for us? What impresses you most about Rossignol? Um, you know, the thing that really impresses me most about Rossignol is kind of the, the long-term commitment that um, a, a lot of the, 
a lot of its employees and people who are associated with the brand have. Uh, you know, I, I, honestly, I, I was a Rosignol athlete growing up as an alpine skier and always skied on Rosignol and, uh, you know, with little forays here and there to maybe a couple other brands, but I always came back um, after a year or two. And it, it was, it's just, it's, it, it really, what it is, it's a big family. Uh, and, you know, there's a testament to a lot of the people who have been with the brand for so, so long. I mean, a lot of our reps, um, our, our previous president, Ron, who just retired about a year and a half ago, is the only company he'd ever worked for. He worked for, you know, for 42 years. Our current CFO is about to retire. It's the only company he's ever worked for. He's been here for 46 or 48 years. I mean, it's astounding how long-term these guys are just uh, committed to the brand. And it, it's, it's fun to see, you know, it's a, it, it's a small company. It's probably smaller than a lot of people realize uh, how few people work for the company. Um, so, you know, we all have 19 jobs, but it's keeps it fresh. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to get in because there aren't a lot of opportunities. Uh, but once you're in, people don't generally leave. <laughs> cool. I appreciate that. Uh, that's kind of my language. I'm, I just broke 20 years for Toco and yeah, I hope that there's another 20 coming. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is one of the questions I was asked to, to ask you. Yeah. When Rosino comes out with new Nordic skis at any level from recreation to racing, can you describe the development and testing process that has gone through to ensure an improved product? But basically just describe the development process. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's multiple years in the making before a new product hits the market. Um, whether it's, you know, backcountry touring, um, or top level race, you know, top level race, there's, we have a lot of avenues as far as outlets for testing. So the world cup obviously is being one of them. Um, our, our you know, our race managers in the, in Europe, uh, Simone Caprini, who's, works really closely with a lot of the top athletes in the world. He's one of the kind of the foremost guys. He and uh, Dominique Locatelli, who's in charge of all of our uh, global development. Dominique himself was a three-time Olympian back in the 80s. I'm sure maybe you know him as well. Um, and uh, so, you know, those guys, it, it all starts with them kind of testing things here and there, playing around. And it's, you know, it's, it's, three to four years ahead of when it actually hits the market, when this, you know, the, the kind of the wheels start to move and then, you know, kind of start to play around with some different constructions or some different ideas. Um, and then a few years out is when stuff really hurt, hit, starts to hit the snow. Uh, and whether that be, you know, it's, and they'll test all different manners of, you know, construction, whether it's a ski or different aspects of a boot or pole even. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's been, from my perspective, it's been pretty fun to see because I'm actually a part of the global design development team. Uh, so I, I've been lucky enough to be involved in a lot of these things over the last five years. And so it's, you know, I mean, I remember last, uh, last May, we happened to have a lot of snow up high in Utah and, uh, oh, sorry, last, yeah, last May. And I was heading over to Europe for a bunch of meetings and to go to, to and I work really closely with a lot of factories and I was, you know, I had a, a whole bunch of touring skis laid out at the top of a pass up in the Uinta mountains and was just back and forth and back and forth and testing skin placements and this and that. And so it, it's, it's an ongoing process for sure, you know, all, all through the winter, obviously, but then even in the summertime in Europe, um, you know, our French team is, they're in the ski tunnels 
uh, in Oberhof and a few other places and up on glaciers, uh, you know, testing really to no end. It's, it's impressive the amount of work that goes into some of these products. Um, but there's a big, but there is a big lead time uh, before this stuff hits the market because we want it to be, you know, as fine-tuned and as, um, uh, as polished as possible. Have you ever come out with, a, with an options for a new model using different materials? So the same construction, it's like, okay, this is the construction we want to go to, but, you know, we're going to try this cyborg material, and here's another sample of this cyborg material, or, or with this base material versus this base material. Is that a pretty common thing? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, on the race side, we'll mess around with like, okay, what happens if we put three layers of carbon in versus one layer of carbon and so on and so forth. And, you know, test how the performance varies in uh, not only different snow conditions, but different temperature conditions. And then, you know, honestly, even in the touring and backcountry range, we test a lot of that stuff too. So we'll test different constructions, different cores, whether it's a, you know, a wood air core or we'll put something, you know, more like a Polonia uh, core, which they use in really lightweight Alpine touring stuff. Um, we'll test a lot of different variations out there for sure. So obviously I knew that goes on in racing, but I don't think people understand the development effort and the effort to get it right when it comes to the recreational skis and, and touring skis as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, in, in the U.S. and Canada, especially, uh, you know, I think for any company out there, touring and backcountry sales far outweigh what we actually do in race sales. So really, those are kind of the money makers. And so for us, you know, for the, the North American market, we actually drive that global production for sure. Uh, you know, there, there is some interest in that for sure in Scandinavia, and I, I work pretty closely with some of the Norwegians on the Rosinal team uh, as far as development stuff, but really um, Jacques Vincent, who runs uh, Rosinal Nordic in Canada, he and I, it's really, it comes down to what we want and what we want the ski to be, how we want the ski to behave, how we want the boot to behave. Um, before it really hits the market. And, the, and we'll definitely, we'll test, you know, maybe not quite as much as the top level race stuff, but we'll test quite a bit uh, as far as backcountry and touring equipment. Yeah, super. So this would be racing and touring. I've, I, you go skiing and you see 20 year old pairs of skis being skied on out there. And oftentimes, you know, I remember, I remember the skis cause I had them. Oh, yeah. They were, they were, you know, it was a good model, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> but it brings the question that, you know, and back then I was really happy with those skis. But it brings the question, is there such thing as progress when it comes to ski development from year to year? Um, I've skied on some of my old favorite skis, and I was surprised to find that although they were still quite fast, they handled so much worse than the more modern skis with newer construction and materials. Can you comment on that, please? Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head right there. It's, you know, I mean, as with alpine skis, the more wax that gets into a ski base is generally gonna be a faster ski. So, you know, older ski is still, can still have some really, really good speed. Um, but it's the, you know, the newer technologies, whether it's um, that, you know, increased lateral stiffness of a skate ski or, you know, or a skin placement on a ski or new construction in the ski is definitely going to change the behavior of the ski. So the, the newer stuff that we've seen in the last really five or 10 years from every company out there, really, um, just in fine tuning, not only, um, 
uh, like the lightweight aspects of a ski, but also, you know, newer construction possibilities as far as materials that are available to us. Um, prices on a lot of that stuff have come down quite a bit, so they're a little bit more consumer friendly. Um, but it's, it, you know, you, older skis can definitely be fast, but you will definitely notice a performance difference uh, versus the newer stuff. The newer stuff just has with that greater you know, kind of construction ease of newer materials, but also just being able to kind of fine tune the builds to have more energy return and more liveliness under your feet. Um, you know, and now a lot of companies are thinking about kind of where they put the weight in the ski as well, uh, which, you know, in the past was probably, I'm sure it was a concern, you know, 30 years ago or something like that, but not quite to the level that it is now. I think there's a um, I think just the opportunities that afford us now with the, the possibilities probably, you know, weren't really there 25, 30 years ago um, as far as what we can put into a ski. Yeah, I've, I've seen the same thing, but yeah, you hear it from the horse's mouth. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, Jeff, I know Rossignol came out with a lot of new skis this year. We can talk about the new Axiom Premium skaters later, but I would like to start from the bottom up. The Evo Touring Ski line is new for this coming winter. Can you describe the Evo Touring Skis and comment on what improvements have been made, please? Sure, yeah. Uh, so the Evos are, uh, you know, for Rosignol and our Touring customer, it's kind of our bread and butter. Uh, it's a short, it's a short compact ski. So we, it's only offered in four sizes and we size it like we do t-shirts. So small, medium, large, extra large. So it's super easy to fit. Uh, but with having a little bit shorter lane ski, it's all about maneuverability and ease of use. Um, maneuverability as far as just because you don't have, you know, what's considered a, a traditional length classic ski under your foot, there's a lot less kind of ski to worry about underneath you and it's a lot easier to handle. Um, they all have a little bit wider platform as well. So really easy to balance, really easy to learn. And, you know, in the Evo range, we have everything from, you know, kind of that entry level customer who's just starting, uh, just wants to get out and enjoy, um, you know, maybe had been on snowshoes in the past, but just wants to get out and kind of cruise around whether they're in a neighborhood or a park or even a touring center, um, you know, everywhere to a little bit more performance with some skins on some of the bases of some of them up to partial metal edge, you know, something that's meant to be kind of go off track out into the woods where you can really just kind of bang it around. Um, there's a little bit of everything for everybody in there. Um, it's, you know, the, there's similarities across the board in the Evo range from the big differences are construction and base material um, or base, um, how they grip the snow. So they're all waxless ski. Um, so you don't have to put a kick wax on. Uh, so it varies from a cut base, which is, you know, actually, so the, the pattern, so that waxless pattern is cut into the base itself. There's an R skin, which is the mohair uh, grip on the bottom, but then there's also something called a posi track, which is actually a thermoformed mold, which is put into the base itself and then put onto the ski. So the, so the pattern actually sticks down from the ski a little bit to guarantee a little bit more better, stronger kick, and it's a little bit harder material, so you can really, so durability goes way, way up. Um, so there's a little bit of everything in there. Uh, so we, you know, we refreshed some of the constructions, a little bit lighter weight. Um, we we kind of changed some of the cap constructions as well to kind of stiffen it up laterally, so it's, it gives you a much more stable platform, a little easier to balance as well. Uh, but there's really an Evo range, there's something for everybody, for sure. It's a ski that a lot of touring centers use as their rental fleet as well. 
my whole I got my whole family the partial metal edge skis. Yep, the OT65. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I have a pair of them myself. They absolutely love them. Yeah, I I know. We I mean, so we we're lucky enough. We live about a mile or so away from a trail system in Park City, and. I mean, when there's snow, we can ski right down the road and right to the trailhead and then out on the trails. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the beauty of them. Ski on snowmobile trails up uh, by Daniel Summit with those. Yeah. So you yeah. climb up, you know, anything. And even if it's icy and this and that, you, 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 it handles all that no problem. But you can also go off track on, on let's say, a track that one snowmobile drove on as compared to a piston pulling a bunch of snowmobiles. It'll handle yes. that no problem too. So yes. it's super versatile and a whole lot of fun for the whole family. Yeah, and even the, you know, even the widest Evo that we offer is still narrow enough to fit into a groomed Nordic track. So they're all, you know, really friendly at a, uh, at a touring center as well, so. Super. Okay, um, this is something that you have a better perspective on than I don't know what the sales are of the, of the couple models below the Axiom premiums, but I've always been amazed at the performance of the skis that are step or two down. So, for example, the non-premium axioms and also the yep. Delta skis, yep. they impress the heck out of me. They ski so well. The price points are amazing. Um, the Delta skis, the Comp and the Course, I think are probably the best value in Nordic skiing, period, for, you know, for, for let's say, racing or, you know, um, fitness skiing or that kind of a thing. Can you comment on that? Because I don't have the perspective to do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, with those skis, especially it's, there's a lot of trickle down technology from the premium. So everything we learn at that top level of the premium ski, you know, we can apply a lot of what we've learned down into kind of that next few levels of ski. Um, so, you know, we want to offer one really good performance, but then also uh, the best value that we possibly can. Um, it's, you know, the Exium and the Delta Conf in particular, uh, those two skis are, yeah, they're, they're hard to beat really. So they share the same core that we use on our top level premium skis, um, the a Nomex honeycomb. So it's really laterally stiff this way, but it has a lot of flexibility, especially in the tip and the tail. Uh, and it's a tapered build. So thicker through the middle of the ski, obviously, as you see with skis. Um, so the, the tip and tail have really good flexibility, but we pull out a lot of the, you know, we pull out the carbon, we pull out some of those kind of more uh, aggressive features just to make it a little bit more forgiving. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the beauty of a lot of the top end skis now is they're really easy to ski. Uh, the balance is great. They're super stiff laterally. And so, you know, for even for a kind of an intermediate or beginner skier, if they get on a top end ski, um, they're going to be able to ski on it. No problem. The, but the benefit of that kind of that next, you know, level or two down is that they're just much more forgiving. So your balance doesn't always have to be right on top of your ski and your hips don't have to be like really over the top of the ski. Um, and, you know, it's not going to kind of pitch you to the side or, uh, or, or let you, you know, it's an easier way to learn and easier way to get comfortable with technique before you kind of make that step up. Um, and, and honestly, for most people, they're skis that they'll never outgrow because the, the quality and the performance is so good um, that for most people, that's more than they ever need. And, it's a, they're, and because of that, they're fantastic. And it's a great investment for, too, for sure. For sure. So you might disagree with me on this one, um, <laughs> but I think in many cases, people get skis that are designed for higher performance than the way that they will actually be skied on. 
what I mean by this is, for example, the Axiom premiums are designed to be skied on in a very dynamic manner, both skate and classic, working the camber aggressively. And I think many of these skiers might be happier with an Axiom or a Delta Comp ski. Um, for example, a lot of coaches ski on what we call coaches skis, you know, real soft skis and skate in and classic that, that kick real easy and they, they have a really, and skating, a really easy breakaway speed. You don't have to work the camber and so on. And for me, that's what the Delta comp is and the X. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious what your opinion is on this. If, if sometimes people get too nice a ski or, you know, expensive or what do you want to call it? Kind of a Porsche instead of getting the, you know, the one step down that, that might satisfy their needs exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that can certainly happen for sure. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is kind of personal preference and it really depends on someone's budget. If they're, if they want the best, then I, I mean, who's to stop them from getting the best? Uh, but I, I, I do agree that, you know, if someone, um, if someone's kind of getting into the sport and they're kind of progressing through those technique levels and, you know, kind of that, you know, working their way through the learning curve, um, that second to third tier ski is going to be an easier ski to learn on, um, as we were talking with before, just because it is more forgiving. Um, and you really don't, it's an easier, there are easier skis to ski on without getting too discouraged. Um, and then, you know, I think what a lot of people do too, is they'll have that, you know, that whether it's an entry level ski or mid price point ski to learn on for a little while, and then they can always kind of step their way up and then, you know, use those first pairs of skis as, you know, kind of that early late season ski uh, when they don't want to take out their, their really good skis. Super. So let's talk about the new Axiom premium skaters. Okay. Uh, they're brand new for this coming year. I've had superb results with the Axiom premium skating skis and classic skis, but um, these past few years, I'm super happy with them. But I, I know a bit about the, the new skis that are coming out, and I'm really excited about them. Um, they have a completely new flex pattern or pressure distribution. Can you describe last year's skis and how the new skis would compare with those? Yeah. Uh, so when we set out to design this new ski, you know, this, this again, started probably three or four years ago when we started talking about it. Um, but really, you know, over the last two or three years is when we've been, we've been able to test a bunch of the skis and um, some of the athletes have been skiing on them in the World Cup with the old graphics. So they're a little bit in disguise. Uh, and, but it's a, a drastically different feeling ski. So it's, so what most people know and like about Rosignol skis is there are a couple qualities really is um, they're really, really stable. They've always been super, super stable. Um, they have really good energy return and they're just fun to ski. So we wanted to maintain all the same aspects of the skis that we've always had, but we wanted to kind of change where the construction lives in the ski itself. So what we really set out to do was um, to change the, the swing weight and the feel of the ski. So uh, the pressure distribution was part of this as well. So we pulled a lot of material out of the tip and the tail. So we used to have something called an active edge that ran tip to tail, which was a, a thin ABS strip, a red thin ABS strip that ran all the way around actually the whole circumference of the ski. Um, we pulled that out. And what that does is it takes a lot of material out of the extremities of the ski. And so we can focus on bringing a lot of the weight of the ski underneath the foot. 
Um, and so by taking a lot of that out, that changes kind of that, uh, that lateral stiffness, but how we counteracted that was put in uh, a new edge to edge high modulus carbon sheet in the ski. That's a, more of a top sheet and kind of wraps around um, as well as an additional carbon layer in, internally in the ski as well. Um, and so with that, we still kind of maintain that lateral stiffness and that stability that everyone likes as well as having that energy return, but in a much kind of lighter weight feeling package. I mean, the swing weight, when you think about when you're skating, how many times you bring the ski back under your body, it's drastically, drastically different with the new ski. Um, also by pulling a lot of that material out of the tip and the tail, as well as having a new tip and tail uh, insert that's a much, much lighter weight material. Uh, we also allow the ski, um, the tip and the tail to kind of float through a lot of uh, like softer snow conditions as well. And by doing that, we, we lessen a lot of the pressure points that may have happened um, in the past with some of that excess material. So, you know, in softer material, in softer snow, in warmer snow, whatever it may be, mashed potatoes, any kind of stuff, you know, uh, new snow over hard, anything like that, it's really going to float a lot more um, because that pressure distribution has come a lot more back under the foot itself. There's a, there's a particular condition that I am so excited to ski with these skis in, and that is pretty much everywhere in the United States, but you, you find it, well, everywhere. When you have powder snow that's been groomed and then the powder sets up. Yep. So it's the kind of powder when you walk on it, it makes a noise because there's air trapped in there. Yep. When you ski on that and it's corduroy, the flex and the softness of the, the pressure distribution being very forgiving in the front of that shovel of the ski, the softer it is, the better they go, the harder it is, the more it, it compacts that snow and plows a little bit. And yep. what you described about these skis are perfect for skiing on cordu actual corduroy as compared to, I'm sure they'll be good in skied in snow, but in corduroy, in my mind, they'll be extremely advantageous compared to a ski that's not as soft in the front. And, and, and also mass start races. You know, I, I ski and have skied a lot of mass start races where you're skiing on corduroy if you're towards the front. Yeah. <laughs> and in those conditions, I always pick skis with a softer tip because you're not skiing and skied in snow as much. You're skiing on this corduroy that, that needs to be broken down until you can ski a really harder, hotter ski. Yep. And so these are, these are conditions among many others that I know that are going to go very well in and I'm excited about. Yeah. I mean, you know, the versatility in the, the ski ability of the ski is kind of something that we are after, um, you know, in the past, I mean, depending upon the, the profile of the ski, uh, I mean, we had skis for all different conditions. Our skis definitely, uh, excelled, I think, because of that lateral stiffness. And sometimes if we have a little bit stiffer tip, they really excelled in that firm condition. Um, but now with the change in the pressure distribution, it'll really, it really opens up a whole new avenue as far as, um, you know, where the, where the skis are going to excel. And honestly, you know, I mean, I haven't skied in a condition where the new skis uh, have not performed well. So, so that's a, a, a sensitive point, of course, but it's a point that's worth commenting on and that is sometimes generations of skis are better all around designs and are oriented towards one condition a little more than another condition and um, there have been some years in the past where some of the Rossignols were as if it was hard and fast and you needed a ski that that was going to offer um, 
a good edge to push off with a very strong power return and, and fast, like you might, conditions you might find in the World Cup regularly. Yep. They were awesome. And, but sometimes that came in a price of some, you know, a, let's say a really good powder ski. And I think, and I've been really happy with the skis I've had, but I think this model that you're describing are going to be a great all around model. A, a Absolutely. Yeah. For, that's yeah. really good and everything as compared to the best in one condition and perhaps, you know, in there and other ones. I think this is going to be the, the model that I'm, I've probably been most excited about for many years. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to start skiing on this ski two years ago um, when I was doing some testing over in Europe with them, with the, the development team. And I, I was, I mean, I was blown away by the, the difference in how the ski feels for sure. So it's, it's, it'll be, it's a fun new change. So, you know, not only the ski construction is different, but we have new, uh, new sizing as well. So we go from four sizes to five sizes. Um, so with that, what we were trying to do was really narrow the, the weight range window of the skis um, to really fine tune the opportunity to really have uh, kind of a, not a, well, as perfect of a pick of a ski for anybody as we possibly could. Uh, and with that, we offer uh, flexes as well now. So in the S1, which is our cold ski, we have a kind of a medium and a stiff flex. Uh, the S2, which is our universal ski, uh, we have a soft, medium, and a stiff. Uh, and then in the S3, um, which is our warm and wet snow ski, then we also have a medium and a stiff. And this is more about kind of fine-tuning those specific weight ranges for people uh, to really find the best option for them out there. In the past, oftentimes for, for an S1 type ski, especially for a ski that I was looking for, for cold, dry conditions, yep. I, would, I would fit the ski much softer than I would a ski for different conditions. And sometimes that's a reflection of the ski's design. Like what you're talking about, I wouldn't necessarily need to do that. I just go 120% of my body weight, good to go because the ski is good in those conditions. You know, the design is better. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, ski picks are, it's a very personal thing for sure. Uh, so, you know, you get on firm conditions. There are some people, I, I know some athletes on the World Cup who they like super, super soft skis on really rock hard conditions. And then there are people who are the absolute opposite, opposite end of the spectrum. And so there's a lot of a lot of personal preference when it comes to ski pick and varying conditions for sure. But I think a lot of it comes down to just making sure you have the right profile of the ski that you're, you know, that's going to match the conditions that you're in. So, you know, if you're in really firm conditions, whether you're on a little bit softer ski or a little bit stiffer ski, as long as you have, you know, longer contact points to, to really offer some good stability. And then as you get into softer and softer snow to have those contact points get slower or kind of get narrower and narrower, um, to, to really kind of minimize, you know, suction as you get into warm and wet snow, then, you know, I think it'll be kind of a, uh, it's in, it's a good way to go at least. A couple of minutes ago, you said something that, um, I wanted to kind of drill down on a little bit. And that is you, you mentioned kind of the general properties or the reputation of Rossignol Nordic skis, um, energy return, stability, you mentioned those two anyway, that, that kind of jumped out at me. And I've skied on Rossignol pretty much my whole life. Um, there was a brief period where I went and then came back. But, and um, I demo skis and I test skis and 
the Rossignol skis, in my mind, ski quite differently than, let's say, some of the other leading or all of the other leading brands. There's a, I used to, I, I'm not going to say the brand, but I used to call it the squirt. This, uh, most other brands, but especially this one other brand, when you're skiing in the, as soon as you start to, as soon as it starts to get away from you, it squirts away from your body. And some people like that, but I hate it. I, to me, the Rossignol, it's like, it's there so I can push off it and it goes in the direction I want it to go. It's very stable, but the stability is not at all at the price of speed or feeling free. Yeah. And that's an absolutely critical part of why I love the Rossignol, especially the skate skis so much because they're fast and they feel free, but not the expense of squirting away from you where you could have a, a and I like squirrely skis because oftentimes they're fast, but I don't like squirrely skis that aren't fast. And I'm not saying any other brand is squirrely by, by nature. I'm just saying that's a, that's a, that's a characteristic of Rossignol skis. And I've, I ski on other brands all the time testing them that I really appreciate. Like I, you can make the mistake of thinking that a ski is slower because it isn't squirting away from you. Whereas it's actually far faster and it's staying with you. So you can push off it and glide and it's more predictable. I, I really like that aspect of Rossignol skis and how they handle it. Yeah, it, uh, predictable is, is the word that I was going to choose as well. So, I mean, I, I am, I'm lucky enough as well. I get to ski on, you know, and test like a lot of the other brand skis. And I mean, everybody has great skis right now. Um, it's hard to fault anybody out there, uh, you know, but everybody, every company has definitely distinct differences between how the skis feel underfoot. Um, and, you know, Rossignol definitely has some qualities that I've always at least enjoyed skiing, uh, predictability, stability, um, as well as that, you know, that energy, energy return and just liveliness under your foot that I really, really liked. So, which is why I am where I am. <laughs> sure. But let me, let me, let me describe it in a different way. Let's say I'm skating without poles on a long gradual downhill. If yep. I had a pair of my Axiom Premiums and a pair of any other brand skis, I guarantee if they were the same gliding speed, I guarantee I'd be faster on my Axioms in terms of my actual performance. Skating without poles on a gradual down, just flying or, or taking a technical downhill where I'm unweighting and then skiing off the back of a bump and then unweighting and you know skating through the corners i'm better on a rossignol ski because of the characteristics that we talked about i am i know that and i'm and i'm all on board for that reason well great <laughs> i just it's one to highlight to me there's a difference in the you know a lot of the materials are the same between brands and and i know their bases are different but you know bottom line that's not the biggest difference in most cases for me it's the it's the design element where there are some conscious differences made by disagreements and designers. You know, we, we want the squirt. No, we want stability. We want predictability. We want yeah. someone to be able to fly down a downhill and skate without poles and not lose the platform that he's pushing off of, for example. You know, there are design differences that mean something. And, and I really like Rossignol's skis for that reason. It's not, uh, uh, a brand loyalty thing necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the one thing with our skis too is, uh, you know, over the years, our, the behavior of our skis hasn't really changed. Um, how they perform has changed, but the, the behavior has been probably one of the most consistent things that we've had. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of that is, um, is really due to our 
you know, the development team that we have in place, especially in France, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the top athletes that we work with um, as kind of the, you know, the proving ground. So, you know, Martin Forcad, one of the best biathletes ever, you know, Bolshinov, and, you know, we work really closely with those guys as far as uh, fine tuning different possibilities of kind of the same idea. Um, and so, you know, we still want to maintain those exact same characteristics that we've always had, but just, you know, maybe have a little bit different performance along the way. Right. So the design philosophy has stayed constant. Yeah. That's, that's been my perception as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So skate skis, we're talking about fitting skate skis now. Skate skis are generally fitted at around 110 to 120% of body weight, depending on the ability of the skier. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I would say depending upon the skier and kind of their preference for ski, it can even be up to 130%. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, okay, <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but um, I, also, <laughs> I also find it better to fit my cold skis softer and my faster condition skis. I, I don't think of it as cold and wet necessarily, but it seems like the faster the snow is, the let's say stiffer a ski you can use because it has a better high-end speed generally. And if I use a stiff ski in very cold, slow snow, I'll pay for it in breakaway speed. That's the speed where they start to accelerate. Yep. And so, so the way I look at it is I, I, I generally fit my cold skis softer and then my fast condition skis, usually in S2, stiffer. And I find in the cold snow, a softer ski breaks away easier meaning it feels faster at slower speeds such as climbing. And a stiffer ski might feel slower climbing or at, around the same, depending on the conditions, but would have a much better top end speed, you know, on a, on a fast downhill or yep. cranking down, you know, skating up poles or something. So in cold, slow conditions, I generally choose better breakaway speed in terms of what I'm looking for when I do my ski selection. Mm -hmm. And in faster snow, I generally choose improved higher end speed. And, you know, when you do your ski selection, you have to prioritize. And that's what I generally prioritize. In cold snow, breakaway speed, that is cold, slow snow, breakaway speed. And in faster snow, I don't worry about breakaway speed because it's, it's fast conditions. I, I just look for high-end speed for the most part. Yep. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, and again, you know, it kind of goes back to personal preferences, I think, in this realm. Uh, and what kind of people prefer based on conditions. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, I think one thing with ski selection itself, um, if people you know, are lucky enough to be out there who have multiple pairs of skis, um, it's easy to overthink it. Um, I, I, you know, what I say is like, if I'm ever testing with athletes or anything like that, and like, just you know, like what feels good, you know? I mean, myself and you know, um, our race manager, Evan Elliott, you know, we'll, we'll be out and we'll be testing skis. We'll be testing wax. We'll be doing kind of everything across the board and we'll have ideas of what feels good, but if it doesn't feel good to the athlete or whoever it is, then they're going to choose whatever they feel comfortable on. So I, I think, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to personal preference, but a lot, but based on condition, I think, you know, as we were talking about before, a lot of it is, um, can be based on just the profile of the ski itself, depending upon how it's going to meet the condition of the snow. Um, you, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who love that breakaway speed. Um, you know, especially for climbing, it makes sense because you want it to release really well. Um, and, you know, it makes sense for cold snow, especially when it's draggy. Uh, and honestly, you're not going to have crazy high end top speed in cold conditions anyway. 
um, just because it's kind of aggressive uh, nature of the snow crystals. Um, I mean, it, it definitely makes sense what you're looking for, but as far as stiff and soft, you know, I think a lot of that is, is kind of personal preference. I became aware of this, of the way I like to pick skis based on experience I had that highlighted the, the danger in just using a speed trap. I was at a World Cup. It was a biathlon World Cup in, it was at a time when we, the ski companies were, and I was working, I told you it was a couple of years where I was with a different brand, um, which is now out of business and basically, um, and it was Germina. I worked for Germina for some years. And I was, I was at this World Cup working for Germina, doing some service. The World Cup was in Northern Italy. And there was a German athlete, many German athletes were on the brand, on the product. And we had just come out with carbon fiber skis. And there was a totally new construction. The carbon fiber was less flexible. Yep. We had a higher camber. And the skis that this one athlete chose, and he was a contender in every race, he's got multiple Olympic medals. Um, the skis that he chose were chosen basically off the speed trap. They obliterated every other brand out there or every other ski um, with different constructions in the speed trap. And he, and compared to all the other athletes, his, his skis also crushed everybody and he chose them. And you always, you know, kind of like, you got to be careful when you're going with completely new construction with completely new flex and everything, because you don't know what you're getting into. And this, this place in Northern Italy where we were ski racing is known for dry snow which yep. you can get into trouble with picking the fastest skis in a speed trap. And when he did the race and his ski time was something like two and a half minutes slower than what he had expected it to be. And again, this is a multiple Olympic gold medalist. Yeah. And he came to me afterwards and said, what the heck happened? I'm never going to skin these things again. And then I explained to him the trade-off and, and it became aware to me. I became much more sensitive to it. The trade-off between high end speed and breakaway speed, especially when it comes to cold, dry snow, you have to be careful. Yep. Yes. And, and uh, ever since then, I've been real careful about it because if it gets a multiple Olympic gold medalist and he chooses the wrong skis, then <laughs> it's going to happen to all of us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh ab absolutely. You know, and it's, and it's, there's, there's a little magic to ski picking as well. Uh, and there's a lot of luck. So, I mean, you know, as well as anybody, you'll go out one day and what seems like a similar condition to another day with the same pair of skis that were fast the day, you know, a couple of days ago. And it could be minor percentage change in, you know, moisture level or whatever. And your skis are dogs and you're like, God, what is going on? And it's just one of those things that's it's sometimes it happens. And it's, you know, it's, you know, the more testing you can do and the more time really for anybody out there, the more time you can spend on your skis and recognizing where they're good and where they excel versus where they really don't work that well, the better off you're always going to be for sure. And that goes for, you know, someone who's just starting skiing, someone who's been skiing for 50 years to, you know, any elite athlete out there, you know, something that we always tell our athletes um, that we work with is spend time in your skis, go ski them, like, you know, line them up, go, go do laps on a course and you'll see, you know, and do it every day and, you know, varying conditions. And so you'll learn the characteristics of each pair of skis, where they're good, where they're bad. This ski climbs well, this ski has great breakaway speed. You know, this ski, you know, works really well with a lot of moisture in the snow and so on and so forth. And it, like, the more time you can spend on, whether it's a fleet or skis or one or two pair, it doesn't matter. Uh, the more time and the more comfortable you are recognizing their, um, their benefits, 
um, and kind of their, you know, where they excel and where they don't excel really, uh, the better off you're going to be always. Absolutely. And then once you recognize a predisposition, then it makes sense. You know, if, if you have a pair of skis that you thought were good cold skis and they turn out to be really good wet snow skis and might as well throw a wet snow grind on there and, and yeah. kind of, yeah. or, or the luxury of, of multiple pair of skis like that, then. then yeah. Yeah. Know. Or, you know, I mean, you know, grab your, uh, grab your Toco structure tool and go out when it's wet, you know, with what you thought was a cold ski that hasn't really been performing well and throw a different, you know, throw, throw some structure on there and see how it performs. I mean, I, I, I have to say, I have a pair of really, I have a pair of great skis. They're, they're eh, probably five, six years old. Um, and I have a feeling I'm probably, they're going to be relegated to rock skis now with the new construction, but, um, they're, you know, they're meant to be a cold ski. And as far as kind of like that, you know, 20 degrees Fahrenheit and up, they are lights out fast. It's unreal. And, you know, they're supposed to be, you're supposed to be good for, you know, maybe 15 degrees Fahrenheit and under, but it's actually the opposite end of the spectrum. And so, and it's one of those things where, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be able to just like constantly test and see where they're good and where they're not good and recognize like, okay, you're supposed to be cold skis, but they're not great cold skis, but they're really good in this other condition. So yeah. And I guess what we're seeing now is probably giving a lot of people stress, but I think hopefully a lot of other people feel the way I feel. And that is it's fun. Like I, I I'm, yeah. I'm blessed enough to have multiple skis and I love, <laughs> taking a bunch of them out and playing around with them and, and figuring them out, you know, what they're especially good in and what they're perhaps not so good in. Cause I love having fast skis. And when I can match up my skis to the conditions and then you got wax and structure on top of that. But the first most basic element is matching the skis up to the conditions. It's, it's really exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you said too, uh, you know, not everybody is lucky enough to have, you know, 10, 15, 20 pairs of skis for some people. Uh, and some people have one pair and that's, that's totally fine. I mean, honestly, get out and ski and enjoy, you know, I, I mean, anytime you're out skiing is really, you're better off. <laughs> you're not sitting in front of a computer. You're not sitting at your desk. You're out, you're enjoying. That's all that really matters. Well, I've had, I got a lot of pair of skis too. And there were a few years over the last 10 years where I had one pair of skis that were head and shoulders ahead of all my other skis in almost every condition. Yeah. And so from that point forward, as far as racing went, effectively, I had one pair of skate skis. Yeah. Because <laughs> they were awesome. They were so <laughs> incredible. That's all I was skiing on because they were unbelievable. So even sometimes, even if you have a lot of pair of skis, you only have one pair that you're actually racing on because they're. Oh, it's, oh yeah. I mean, honestly, even, I mean, you look at, uh, I mean, I, some of the, some of the world cup athletes I know and have known over the years. Um, I mean, I, they'll have 30 to 50 pairs of skis, but really when it comes down to it, they have three pair of skis that they race on. Right. So they'll have a cold pair, you know, kind of a, a uni pair and then they'll have a warm pair. And other than that, doesn't matter. Um, I mean, what, uh, I, so, when I was back in my stone grinding days, the, our technician for, for the stone grinder that we had, um, he was a Swedish guy and his stone grinds had won, oh my God, I think he said when he retired, he had won 150 different individual world championship and Olympic medals on his grinds. And he said there was a Russian woman that he used to grind skis for for a really, really long time. 
she just that one pair of skis she raced on for nine years and won, I think she won 12 different individual medals, either at the Olympics or the world championships, because they were just, they were that fast. And so, and, and he just reground them and reground them and reground them until basically there was nothing left to them. <laughs> so yeah, they'll, they'll, people will always have one or two pair that they're, that they're be their go-tos. And, but Hey, if you have one or two pair and that's it, then you're ahead of everybody else. Cause you don't have to weed through all the other options. <laughs> And let's talk about S3s. Okay. So obviously S3s are for wet conditions in general. Yep. We also know that they perform well in other conditions too sometimes, really well. But they're made for wet snow. One would think that S3s would be fitted the most stiff, being that they're for wet, wet snow. This isn't the case, though, necessarily. I was hoping you could tell me, tell us how you fit S3s. So depending upon where someone is skiing, it, it can play into it. You know, if they're, I mean, nowadays, especially with the amount of man-made snow options out there, uh, which generally have really, really aggressive abrasive snow, the S3 is a great ski for that because it has a harder base. Um, so it stands up well, you know, the, the base itself, it's a white base. Um, so it's a, it's a graphite, but we just, we pull out the, the black color. Um, it's a harder material. It's also more hydrophobic and it, it repels dirt really well. Um, so getting into those wetter kind of nastier conditions, it does really, really well. The big thing with S3s too is um, something that I found with testing is I've actually gone a little bit softer than maybe I would have in years past uh, just to minimize any kind of pressure points um, and any kind of risk of, of the ski plowing some of that softer snow, especially once you get into like really, you know, warm, deep, soft snow. Um, but really what you want is it's all about minimizing those pressure points. So you want really good, as much separation in the tip and tail. So you want tip and tail splay um, as you possibly can get. So the ski can really float over and minimize that suction between the ski base and the amount of moisture in the snow. So that's kind of what I was alluding to. The S3 is, it's not necessarily a continuance of the difference between S1 and S2s. The, it seems to me that the pocket is a little shorter to allow room for the tip splay and tail splay. Yep. Yep. And for that reason, if you're skiing on a super stiff pair, it kind of defeats the purpose of the intended tip and tail splay. I was, I've got a pair of S3s that was fitted to, for me from someone else, not yourself. And they were, I, I, I had a hard time skiing on them, especially in certain conditions, harder conditions. Yep. I felt like they were on rails and, and um, it wasn't just me. A few other people tried them and we were like, wow. And I came to you for the season afterwards and said, I've got a real problem. You need to convince me of the S3s. I know people in the World Cup are winning races on them all the time, but I, the time. I, I depend on my own, my own experiences as well. So yep. I can say other people do well on this, but I don't know how to make them fast yet, kind of a thing, you know? And so you set me up with a pair of S3s. You fit, fitted them for me. You picked them out, and they've been absolutely fantastic. So the, the first ones that were fitted for me were really stiff. The second ones that you fit for me were much softer, and they were much better in the same super wet conditions. So that's, that's yep. just something that needs to be pointed out, I think, because – the, the, the idea is, well, of course, if it's stiff, uh, if it's really wet, especially wet and hard even, 
then I can I can get away with a higher camber, you know, really stiff S3 kind of a thing. But you got to be careful with that because that's not necessarily how the construction is designed. Yeah, I mean, so the the difference between really the the construction between the S1, S2, and S3. So the S1 has you know kind of a that longer pocket, longer contact tip and tail. Uh, to offer more stability in those really firm conditions. The S2, that contact point kind of comes in a little bit. The bridge under the ski comes in a little bit as well. And then the S3, the same kind of thing. And it's really, as you said, to the point, it's, you know, it's really about minimizing um, the, you know, the suction between the, the ski and the moisture in the snow, but going a little, what I found at least going a little bit softer, you know, not like crazy, you know, if you weigh 170 pounds, I'm not saying pick a ski for 140 pounds, you know, maybe just air, you know, a couple kilograms or pounds down or something like that versus what you would have chosen or have a shop choose for you. Um, and I've just found that it, it just lessens a lot of the pressure points and it just, it just lends to a faster ski overall. Yeah. And that's the point I want to make regarding the S3 because Again, if, if, if you're skiing in wet snow, the idea is less contact, stiffer ski. Great. But, yeah. but that's not necessarily the way it works because the S3 is a different design and it's got tip uh, and tail splay worked into the design. So yes. if you go soft, you're not necessarily um, increasing contact unless you go way too soft. Exactly. So um, the, the camber also, is built to minimize that contact itself. Exactly. Whether stiff or soft, it doesn't matter. So you don't have to do it by making it stiffer because it's built that way. Exactly. And then, of course, in wet snow, oftentimes you get softer snow. And if yes. you go the super stiff route, you're going to be plowing. Yep. So that's, that's, the, that's the, what I wanted to hear from you was some clarification on that. It seems to me that it would be a mistake to say, hey, wet, wet conditions, I'm just going to go with a you know, 130% of body weight or something my experience based on my limited sample size and your confirmation based on your huge sample size and experience is don't go too stiff, but err on the soft side with the S3s. Yeah. And for those reasons. Yes. That's really important because I think if you screw that up and you go super stiff, you're going to have uh, some skis that perform really badly in certain conditions because that's not how they're, they're constructed to be fit. Y yes, I agree. Yeah. I, 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 I had, uh, I had a pair of skis a long time ago that were really, really, really stiff and too stiff for me regardless anyway. Um, and I skied them on a warm day and it was just, they were plowing so much that, um, and I had, I had this before I was with Rosignol, I had a, a pair of Rosignol and I had another brand ski. They were both kind of warm skis. Um, and actually the, the Rosignol, the Rosignol ski that I had was too stiff and it was so slow. And the other one was much softer and it was, it was actually a much better fit. So and it, was more, it was more about the profile of the ski, but also about kind of just lessening those pressure points in the ski itself. So S2s are a fantastic all-around ski. Yes. And, and you, <laughs> you fit the S2s, you know, kind of conventionally, somewhere between 110, 120% body weight. I'm going to come out with some comments because you just said you were talking about super stiff skis. There are a couple conditions that I've found a super stiff, meaning at least 120% body weight, pair mm -hmm. of S2s seem to work extremely well in. Yep. And I call them, they're special conditions. So one would be if you're skiing in, this is skating, S2s, if you're skiing in mashed potato type snow, so you have super deep snow 
and there's no platform underneath. So it's, you know, it's like uh, shin deep kind of snow, which you find in huge snowstorms, and you can also find in, in wet, but I'm talking about, you know, let's say it snows a foot, they tried grooming it, but didn't set up, and a, and a whole bunch of skiers went through it, and it's just deep and soft. I find in, if this course is flat, so there's not a lot of climbing, flotation becomes extremely important if the mm -hmm. skis can float over that snow. And I found a, a, a very stiff S2, it's got quite a long so-called wheelbase and it floats pretty well on the flat. And, yep. and if you're, the temptation we go to with an S1 in those conditions, but an S1 wouldn't offer the, the longer wheelbase, the, the stiffer tip, you know, somewhat stiffer tip. In other words, it wouldn't offer the flotation that an S2, a stiff S2 especially would offer. And so for, for flatter conditions, let's say the Boulder Mountain Tour, the Boulder Mountain Tour and really deep soft snow like we had think two, it was years two years ago. Yep. I, I recommended this exact thing to some skiers and they had the races of their lives. And I tested it and it was the way to go. If, if that same course had been a course like Soldier Hall, I would not have recommended that because you ski in deep snow with those really stiff high cambers, they plow on the, on the climbs in that super deep snow. And then I would go with an S1 a soft S1, but in the super deep snow, the amount of climbing, I think, determines if I'm using an S1 or, or a very stiff S2. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the idea of flotation seems to work really well on the flat, but not so well on the climbs? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, flotation like that too, especially on a flatter course, you know, you're not going to be putting as you, as you are on a climb, you're not going to be putting quite as much power into the ski as well. Um, so having that flotation is going to offer a much more stable platform for sure. Um, but I think, you know, some of that too could be a little bit more personal preference as well, as we had talked about, because, you know, a softer ski, if you go a little, um, a softer ski is not going to kind of plow as much, but you still could get some flotation depending upon the profile of the ski itself. Um, you know, if you do have a longer contact point, even with a softer ski, you're going to get good flotation. Um, so it kind of depends on, you know, a little bit of your technique and how you ski and so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, you, you're a strong guy, so, you know, you can get away with a stiffer ski for sure, because you, you do put a lot of power into the ski. Um, that may not be the case for everybody out there, but I, I but I, I totally agree in that situation. You, you know, the, the flotation one, it's going to offer really good versatility and kind of that outright speed, especially in the flats. Uh, but it's going to offer again, um, a really good stable platform under your foot. So it's going to be easier to glide, easier to balance. Um, and you're not going to kind of get stuck down into the snow, especially if you are able to kind of reach those higher speeds. I, I liken it. I mean, you don't necessarily need to make a comparison, but if you, if you talk about someone with really good swimming techniques, such as their, their legs stay high in the water yep. and, they displace less water when they're traveling through the water. Yep, yep. And I think it's the same thing, that flotation concept on the flats. I've found I can work much, I can go much faster with less work as long as I don't use my legs too much because I'm displacing less snow while I'm traveling over the snow on the flats yep. with stiff skis like that. Whereas if you get to the hill, it becomes a liability and chewed up hills, that steep, stiff camber because there's more pressure on the front of the ski climbing in, in, in that soft snow, it'll dig in because the camber's so high. But that's just something I found is, that's how I would do my ski selection. 
between a stiff, a really stiff pair of S2s and a soft pair of S1s in that deep mashed potato snow is how much climbing is there in the course? And if it's a mass start, I might even think about, okay, if I'm in there, how do I get to the finish line first? I might look at the finish, the last couple of Ks and say, okay, you know, do I want to have the best skis in the finish? And what is the terrain before the finish? Yeah, well, and you, you think about races like the Berkey too, you know, the course can be 100% difference if you're in the first wave versus the seventh wave because it gets chewed up. And so there's, a, you know, there's, there's skis like that where, or races like that where because of the amount of people on the course and how drastically the course changes over the course of a few hours, um, ski selection will be very, very different depending upon kind of where you are in the race as well. Absolutely. So. I mentioned the same thing about the point-to-point races with corduroy. Traditionally, I'm in front and I'm skiing on corduroy. And we do our wax tips and people talk to us about ski selection at expos before these races. I'm always like, okay, where are you going to be? Because if you're in the top 25, let's say, you need to have a pair of skis that's going to address the corduroy. Yeah. But if you're in 100th to 1,000th or whatever place, it's a whole different race back there and there's more moisture in the snow because so many skis have skied over it, it creates a water film, and the actual softness or hardness, you know, and depth of the snow is different. So that's something I'm very sensitive to. Let me, let me talk about another condition, and this is something that I've had great success in. It's the same flex I was just mentioning, but I don't worry about the climbs. And that is, when there's a hard base of snow, and then it snows, let's say, three inches on top, which is a very common condition. You find it at, at, at marathons, they don't regroom oftentimes if, if it snowed just three inches, two, three inches. Yep. And I've found if I use the skis that I would traditionally use for that temperature range, um, I'm gonna have more contact with the snow, uh, the ski base on the snow than I would because of that loose snow on top of that hard base, it'll fill the camber at all times when I'm gliding, even on an unweighted ski, like if I'm, if I'm in a tuck, for example, you still have much more contact with the snow. And for that reason, more contact, uh, more suction, more drag. And what I've found in those conditions, warm or dry, is I, again, I go with a really stiff pair of S2s when you have a hard platform. So I'm not talking mashed potato snow. It's a hard, hard platform with two to three inches of fresh snow on top and you're skiing on that, it's not skied in, um, that the, having a much higher camber yields far less drag in my experience and a much faster ski. And I know that's a very specific condition, but they're actually pretty common. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, a stiffer ski in that and, uh, you know, what a lot of people will tend to do, even in harder conditions, will ski, they can afford to, to ski with a little firmer ski, uh, because it's going to offer a little bit more stability and energy return, but having something with a little higher camber in the conditions that you're talking about will minimize just kind of how much you're plowing because it'll kind of free up the ski a little bit to move over that, uh, that fresher snow. Because generally with snow like that, you're going to basically, you know, go right through and you're either going to be on the hard surface underneath or just on a little bit of layer underneath as well. So there's a little bit more snow to kind of like push out of the way. So, you know, having something with a little bit higher camber is just going to move a little freer through that. Um, and will be, you know, a very, a, a little bit different profile than you would choose if it, if it was just rock hard and it wasn't uh, a soft snow on t- or it wasn't like new soft snow on top for sure. Yeah. I need to make a clarification. So 
I'm not talking about super wet new snow. Yep. Where that's a different animal because when you're skiing through that, oftentimes you hear that crunch, 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 and that's the snow compacting under the tip. Yep. I'm talking yep. about dry, drier yep. snow that's that's two, three inches deep over a hard, where you don't have to worry about moisture management so much, but there's still a drag associated with having a lower camber in that snow. When you go to a, a high camber ski, like a real stiff S2, and you'll find it's got far less drag on at slower speeds, but especially at high speeds, like on a higher speed downhill or a flat where you can, you know, you're skating really hard. There's a far, far less drag at high speeds, which is why I think it's important to highlight that because whenever I can find a condition where I can, I can match up a pair of skis to the condition and, and find a significant advantage, I'm really excited about it. Oh yeah. Well, any, I mean, any advantage where you can get, especially if you're, if you happen to be in a race, I mean, it's yeah. And slow skis are never fun. <laughs> I mean, this is what I do. I know this is what you do too, but I, I race a lot too. And, um, and it's important to me, very important to me to have really fast skis. <laughs> so this is what I do, you know? <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about classic skis. Okay. For years, I'd say pre-skin, the few years before skins really hit, classic skis were, a, at least from my perspective, a, a drastically shrinking category. That's true, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So classic ski yeah. sales were dying, you know? Uh, waxable classics, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah I agree. Yeah. And, and since the introduction of skins, the category is exploding, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So skin skis are fantastic. And it's, a, it's an exploding category, so let's talk about it. They're fantastic for easy skiing and training. That said, they're also being used more and more for racing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of citizens racers and masters racers are using them in, in all, the, all, the, all the time, but even in elite ski racing, they're being used more and more. The issue when it comes to racing is the drag, not the kick. They kick like a mule, but the drag is the issue. Do you have any tips for better skin performance outside of applying a product such as Toco Skin Proof which would minimize freezing of the skins or icing and it also speeds them up. Uh, yeah, I mean, in general, the, the, the skin ski category has exploded over the last four to five years and even starting before that, uh, mostly because I think people were just getting frustrated with uh, kick wax. Um, you know, it's, there's, uh, unfortunately for, you know, companies like Toco who sell kick wax, <laughs> uh, but it's, but it, but it, ne it wasn't necessarily anything to do with the wax itself. It was having to drastically change what wax you're using every day. And even over the course of the same ski, you know, you would have to change your wax three or four times um, with, you know, the, the latest weather patterns, you know, everything, all the global warming stuff that's happening. Uh, you, you know, the, the unpredictability of, uh, of wax on classic skis was just getting, and still is getting harder and harder to predict. So, you know, people, I think we're getting a little discouraged and skin skis enabled a lot of people to come back to classic skiing that have maybe been scared off for, for a little while. Um, I mean, of course, having said that, you know, there's nothing like going out and skiing on a perfect hard wax, like classic day, it's still hard to beat and it's still super, super fun. Um, and waxing in those conditions are pretty easy and straightforward. Um, so for the most part, um, I don't think skin skis have hurt kick wax sales at all, really. 
uh, at least not from our side. The Toka wax line for kick wax, we have four colors, temperature sensitive colors in a binder. And for Clister, we have three in a binder. And we don't make a wax for every single condition. And where we are a little weaker sometimes is because we don't have, the closer you get to zero degrees Celsius, you know, more moisture in the snow, yep. the more, the, the smaller the ranges in the wax. So you can have like one degree between waxes when you get oh, yeah, to for that sure. range. And that's where we haven't decided to split hairs. Our philosophy is, let's say you've got 15 different kick waxes in one huge line. You're going to use four or five of them 90% of the time. That's the Toko kick wax. That's our yeah. philosophy right there. And when yeah. it comes to the, the, the temperature range where, let's say the sun goes behind a cloud, next thing you know, you're, your wax doesn't work anymore, you know, because it's a little yeah. icy. Or the sun comes out from behind a cloud and now it's too soft because there's too much moisture and you need to switch your, you know, that's the kind of stuff where we're like, you know what, just use your skins and we're happy and you're happy, everyone's happy, you know? So yeah, well, and you know, to your point, I mean, you know, there are still, you know, a, a good number of people who are buying waxable classic skis out there, but there are just a lot more people who are buying skin skis in addition to those. So, you know, the category classic skiing in general, the whole category has kind of, uh, you know, had a rejuvenation really because of skin skis. And it doesn't necessarily take away from waxable classic ski sales. It just increases the amount of skis overall that are being sold. Um, but as far as, you know, as far as the fit of a skin ski, you know, something that we, that we try to do in our construction of our skis is for us, as you said, I mean, it's, it's pretty rare you're going to slip on a skin ski, you know, unless it's like rock hard conditions or something where, I mean, you can't even get your pole into the snow or something like that. And the only thing that's going to work is, you know, a cold clister or clister cover or something like that. Um, but in, you know, for, for us, it's really about trying to maximize the glide. So something that we started to do actually last year was we changed all of our camber heights and we actually raised the camber heights of all of our classic skis to really be able to maximize the glide and get that, make sure that skin is off the snow and you're able to glide in, you know, not in a wide variety of conditions, not only soft and, you know, soft and wet, but also in, uh, in colder conditions as well. So, you know, a properly fitting skin ski is, it's just, it's really, really important. Um, and because of that, you know, a lot of shops, a lot of people who fit skis out there will generally fit a ski uh, much stiffer than they would, um, you know, a traditional waxable classic ski. So they'll, they'll go more into the range of how they'll fit a, a, a clister ski. So whether that's, you know, 60 to, depending upon this, you know, the, the technique and the skill level of the skier up to, you know, 70 plus percent of their weight for, for a skin ski. Absolutely. That sounds great. So you addressed the, the question, and that was, do you fit skin skis any different from regular classic skis? You, you just addressed that. As a company, you've addressed that by making the camera a little higher. Yeah. But in yeah. terms of- I mean, you know, even with a, even with a higher camber, I mean, the, the skis are still gonna be really easy to kick just by nature of the skin itself, just right. because of how much it sits down from the ski. Um, but really it's all, with a skin ski, it's really about maximizing glide. And in the percent, in terms of fitting, let's say there's a shop employee listening or, or someone that uh, is a coach, for example, and they have a, they, they, they flex skis. In terms of percent of weight, body weight for classic skis, do you fit a skin ski, let's say 5% different 
than a regular class uh, at minimum five percent yeah i mean i would say you know depending upon someone's technique and how long they've been skiing and their experience you know a waxable classic ski is probably going to be 50 to 60 percent of the of someone's weight somewhere in there um, but a skin ski you know a clister ski is usually 60 to 65 percent somewhere in there uh i mean a skin ski is going to be 60 to i mean could be 70 75 depending upon you know how good of a skier it is yeah cool okay um this is kind of a, a basic or boring question but can you talk about <laughs> fitting your ideal classic ski for hard waxing and hard pack snow so we're talking about a c2 yep just just general parameters and fitting a c2 and what you're looking for in fitting a ski or or a good ski I, I mean, you know, any C2 that's going to be, you know, that's going to be used across a wide range of conditions, you want something that's going to be kind of user friendly for, for everything. So, you know, something that's going to be soft enough that you can really kind of maximize kick in, in cold conditions. Um, but then something that also is going to have kind of a, a good balance of you know, a decent enough camber height that you're going to have some clearance if you need to put on a clister or, you know, if it is kind of a hard pack uh, hard pack snow day or even a, you know, a softer day where you might need like a clister cover or something like that. So whether that's, you know, just a, a higher portion of the bridge where you can really shorten the pocket um, and just finding that, that, that good balance, you know, that's something that we do with our, our C1 and C2 and C3 construction, much like we do in the skate skis is the C1 really has that longer, lower resting camber height made for hard wax conditions. And that C2 is kind of that happy medium. So a little bit higher resting camber, um, you know, a little bit, not quite as long as a pocket as a C1, uh, but then definitely longer than what we would use for our C3. So in our C3 clister ski, we actually, um, we actually put in an additional layer of carbon in the ski to really be able to hold that strong camber. Uh, so to really maximize glide uh, and so you're not dragging clister on the ground. And so that C3, not only does it have a, a very strong resting camber because of that carbon to, to make yep. sure you have room for the clister, yep. but it also has tip and tail splay to minimize. Yes, uh, yeah, quite a, bit, quite a bit. Yeah, to really, much like on the S3 skate ski, um, really to kind of maximize, uh, you, you know, that short contact point so you're not really getting stuck to the moisture in the snow. So the point is a C3 is not just an, another extension of a C2. It's, like, it's not like a real stiff C2. There are some things about it that are markedly different, not just the resting camber, but also the tip splay that you're doing on purpose to minimize contact of the base on the snow and wet conditions. In other words, to minimize suction, obviously. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, very, very different, uh, a whole different idea, um, but kind of utilizing a very similar construction. Um, I'm getting off of what I wanted to talk about directly, but this is an important point to make with, Less people using fluorinated or very hydrophobic waxes these days. Yep. It seems to me that having a pair of C3s and S3s would be far more important even for the future because you can't depend on wax to repel the water anymore as much. You have yep. to depend on ski construction and flex, minimizing yeah. contact with the snow. So yep. going forward, if I didn't have a pair of S2, S3s and C3s, I would definitely have a pair going forward because you, the wax is not going to, they're not going to ski the same, you know, a, a pair of, let's say, C2s or S2s is not going to ski the same in real 
wet snow where before you could use a really hydrophobic wax on it, you need to you need to depend on the construction, the flex pattern of the ski now to, yeah. to repel, to avoid suction, minimize the yep. suction. Yeah, I mean, options in skis, ski selection for athletes, um, all of that is going to become uh, more and more important, you know, as we kind of go away from fluoros as well. You know, another big, big aspect is going to be structure on the base of the ski. Um, so whether that's a hand tool or stone grind or something like that, um, then it's, that's going to be really, really important, especially as we get away from the high fluoro stuff, especially in wet conditions, because, you know, I mean, that's where, you know, high fluoro waxes had the most fluoros in the wax that was specially built for, um, for warm, wet conditions, just to really kind of maximize that glide. So there's another aspect of that, and that is dirt management. Yep. Dirt is mostly found in wet snow. That's, that's you know, when you mostly see dirt. And uh, most people know when you, when you increase the structure in wet, clean snow, there's generally no downside. But when you, in, when you increase the structure in wet, dirty snow, you, you give the dirt a place to hide in the base. And, and you, your base collects more dirt with more structure on it. So again, I want to I stress that going forward with, and also the fluorinated waxes, especially the pure fluorocarbons, repelled dirt very, very well. So again, going yes, forward, if you're racing in wet, dirty snow, you don't, you can't just, unless it's really clean snow, you can't just add more structure, not worry about it. You really need to manage your moisture as best as you can with your ski flex. And that means S3s and C3s. Yep. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the specific base that we put on those, the C3 and the S3 is really key for that aspect too, because it is a harder, much, much harder material uh, and being one more hydrophobic, but it also repels dirt really, really and shockingly well, actually. I'm always amazed at how clean my bases are after like a really, really warm, uh, warm ski. Super. Well, there's a condition I want to talk about, like I did with the skating skis. <laughs> And that is for classic. This is, this is, and this is my perspective. Correct me or give your own opinion. Um, but I, I think that one condition where people make a mistake oftentimes is when the snow is that mashed potato we snow I was talking about earlier. So I'm not talking about a couple inches of snow on a hard base, but rather just, you know, boot deep, super loose snow where the snow is coming over the top of your boots and you're going up these hills. And what, we, what I call mashed potato snow, when you try to kick, it's really easy to kick through the snow and slip because the camber is being hyperextended a little bit because yep. that snow is so deep. And when the camber hyperextends, you're going to get zero grip. I mean, very, very little grip because a ski is not meant to be shaped that way and you'll go through the snow. And my experience, and I, I learned this the first time from Jim Fredericks, who is a very long time Rossignol race service I, man. And I've and known Jim friend. since I was 10 years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, me too. Uh, anyway, most people use very soft skis in soft snow like that. And I get it in, in somewhat soft snow with a, with a hard base, but when it's that deep mashed potato snow and you, and you, especially in the sections of the course where you want to have good skis, which is oftentimes climbs, if you're not going to do a running herring going up those and you actually want to be able to get some kick on those. What mm -hmm. I found is if you use a stiffer pair of skis, like a, like a, a, a stiff C2, like a clister flex, or at least a hard track, um, hard packed flex, rather than powder skis, which is the most common choice that I've seen, 
the skis then can cup the snow in the yep. camber, in that deep snow, yep. and it packs it in the camber, and you can get much more traction and have much more platform to push off than if you're using a softer ski in those exact conditions. And you can also, of course, wax them longer and a little thicker, which gives you a cushion to get more yep. kick in that snow as compared to a softer ski where you don't have the room to do a cushion or yep. the length necessarily to do a longer pocket. So my recommendation would be to go with a clister or, or a stiff hard track ski and plan on, on kind of cupping the snow, that loose snow, and going thicker with your wax for more cushion as well as a little longer. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? No, I, no, I think you nailed it on the head right there. <laughs> That's a really common mistake, don't you think? I see that all. Yeah, the yeah. No, I think I think with a with a softer snow or with a softer ski, one of the things is because the ski compresses so much that you just you blow out the bottom of the track or the or the bottom of the of you know the surface of the snow where you are. If you had that higher uh, camber, it gives you a little bit more ground to really, as you're saying, cup the snow and really you know, use the snow to your advantage to be able to kind of propel yourself forward instead of blowing out through the bottom of it. I mean, my experience is for the most part, people think soft snow, soft skis. Yep. I need more kick. It's soft snow, I need more kick. I got to go with soft skis. And, and I think that is a huge mistake to make in those conditions. Okay. Well, I'm glad we agree on that and um, that's confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about we, we, as a wax company, are, are working on developing really fast fluoro-free waxes. But still, in wet conditions, nobody has found a solution that has performed nearly as well as the fluorinated waxes and top coats from past years. For people interested in having great skis and races and considering the floral band that exists in pretty much all domestic racing in the United States, how would you make your skis faster in wet snow without being able to depend on wax to make your bases super hydrophobic? Uh, I, I mean, uh, I mean, much to the point that we talked about before, you know, I think the, the key thing really is going to be ski selection um, and having really the, the proper profile uh, to match the conditions that you're looking for um, without, you know, kind of the, the aid of high fluorinated waxes. I, I think, you know, ski selection and then also the like hand structure or stone grinds or something like that are going to really, really come into play for sure. Okay, and I agree, of course. More so, a lot more so than they have in the past uh, because you don't have that, you know, so-called uh, crutch of having super fast wax in your skis, especially in wet conditions. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about bindings because I think the, the Rossignol bindings can play a role in this as well. So yep. Rossignol bindings can be moved easily forward and backward. Yep. Which, and that, that, that one click forward or one click back can yep. greatly change the performance and handling of skis. We're talking skate and classic. In classic, as a general rule, if you want more kick, you move the binding one click forward. And if you want more glide, you move the client the binding one or two clicks back, depending. Yep. Yep. Similarly, in skating for less contact of the ski in the snow, for like, for example, loose snow conditions or wet snow conditions, like we just alluded to, you can click the binding back one or two for skating and for classic, what is your default binding setting for average racers in average conditions? Uh, just right at balance point, right at zero. So that's what I do. I know a lot of people yep. that, that their default is minus one. And, I think the skis are made that, at zero. <laughs> that's yeah, a, a, lot of, a lot of that too is personal preference. I mean, some yeah. people like, 
I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, kind of the, the ramp angle stuff that people were playing around with quite a bit, right. uh, you, you know, a handful of years ago. Um, but I think now with the, the adjustability and the ease of use of the bindings um, and really kind of almost being able to do it on the fly, it's really easy to kind of to, to be able to move around and mess around with kind of where you sit on the ski. Um, anybody who does that personal preference of where you want it to sit, I mean, generally, I would say probably, you know, 90% of the people are just going to have it at zero. And the amount of time they'll use it is pretty minimal until they get into really kind of difficult conditions. Um, but some people like it, you know, if they put it in minus one, especially in a skate ski, they just want that ski to, they like that release feeling of the ski. Um, and just to take a little pressure off the tip. Uh, so if they are in, you know, a really, you know, a hilly course, even if it is firm or something like that, it just helps this, maybe the tip to, uh, to, to release a little bit easier for them. Uh, and some of it honestly can have to do with a little bit of technique too. It kind of depends where you sit on the ski, how you sit on the ski and so on and so forth. Well, about skin skis, my default on skin skis is, is minus one. Yeah, I mean, well, and it, it, a lot of that depends on your, your comfort with classic technique as well. I mean, anybody who's been skiing for a long time will always, honestly, will always err on the glide versus kick <laughs> section. You know, if you want a super easy day and you're just like, I just like, oh my God, I just, I'm exhausted today. I want to really, like, I don't care how fast I go. I just want bomber kick. Yeah, throw it to plus one, go a little farther forward, you're going to have bomber kick. Um, most, most people who've been skiing for a really, really long time who maximize glide will either have it at zero or minus one. I mean, zero, I think, is a, is a pretty good place for most people to put their binding, especially if the skin ski is fit properly for them. Um, if you get into softer conditions, that's where moving the binding back really kind of frees up that skin by getting you off of the kind of more toward the back of the camber of the ski. And, and that's also the case with skating, I think. Would you agree that, let's say you got an S2 ski and, and, um, and the conditions are soft, would you be tempted compared to harder conditions to move the binding back one? Uh, yeah, I mean, try it for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I mean that's, why, that's why the bindings are movable. I mean, mess around with it and see what works and what doesn't work. I mean, you know, the same thing that goes along with ski your skis in all conditions to see where they excel. I mean, do the same thing, you know, mess around with the binding placement, you know, move it back, move it forward, mess around and, uh, and see what feels good in what conditions. But I think as a general trend, that seems to be more the norm. If a person were to move the binding back, it would be in softer conditions for skating. Yes, yep. And then the other one, which I think is an interesting thing, we've just been talking about how to maybe make your skis work faster, you know, get more out of your skis when you have, the absence of fluorinated glide waxes. Yep. I could see doing a race like the Yellowstone Rendezvous, for example, in the spring, where commonly you have a cold, dry first lap, and then depending on the year and how fast you are, a rapidly becoming wetter second lap. I could personally see someone, or even making a recommendation for someone who's going to ski, let's say, a three-hour rendezvous, ski the first lap with your skis at zero, and your second lap with your skis at minus one. Yep. And that, that would do a lot to decrease the contact with the base on the, on, the, on the snow when there's developing moisture and you can start getting suction in the second lap. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the, the beauty of the movable binding, too, is, you know, for those people who really do only have one pair of skis out there, too, 
it offers a lot of versatility in how that one pair is going to perform. So you get into those rock hard conditions, um, you know, you can move the binding forward a little bit and it gets you right over that top of that camber and it really gives you really good bite into the ski, really stable platform. And then as you get into warmer, wetter conditions or even softer, you know, colder snow, you can move it back to really allow that tip to float. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Um, so let's talk about boots because I know the premium course boots are new this year for both classic and skate. Yep. Can you talk about the changes that were made and what people can expect that will be different when they ski with them? Uh, yeah. So, you know, much like the skate skis, these, uh, these boots were really, uh, kind of a call from our, our world cup athletes. Um, our, our previous premium boots were fit, were fantastic and they still, they still are. We still have a number of, of top athletes in the world who are still racing on them because they just love the fit. They love the performance. Um, but the big difference with the new, uh, skate course and classic course boots is in the lateral stiffness. So the, the heel counter, so I actually happen to have a boot in front of me. So this is last year's, um, last year's premium skate boot. So the, the sole and the heel counter were two separate pieces and they were glued together. This year, this is the new premium course skate boot. Um, this year, it's all full one piece carbon. So having that one piece carbon, having, um, having an all kind of a molded one piece thing gives you a much better uh, lateral stiffness than what we've had uh, in the past. So it really just kind of takes the current premium and then just really increases the performance, uh, the lateral stiffness, as well as, um, as well as lightweight, uh, aspect to the boot as well. We also have a new cuff design on the new skate boot on the new course boot. So it's a little bit bigger surface area on the cuff here. We've actually lowered the lateral and, uh, and medial heel counter just to minimize any kind of pressure points that people may have with the boot, as well as in the heel. We've actually lowered where the carbon hits versus what we've had in the past on the skate boot. Um, this sat much, much higher. And by lowering it, we really kind of minimize any kind of pressure points that people may have on their feet. Um, but with that one piece construction heel and sole heel counter, um, it just, it really, really ups the game as far as lateral stability. Um, the weights have really dropped in the boot, especially in the classic boot. The classic boot is, uh, I think we lost about almost 200 grams in the classic boot, which is astounding. I mean, it's almost half a pound. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I have these boots and they're light. They're stiff. They work great. There's not a ton of insulation in them because they're so light and stiff. And you just lost some more from the sound of another 200 uh, grams. Uh, no, actually, you know what that when the classic boot. Uh, the, so the insulation with these two are actually the same. Uh, the big weight savings really in the classic boot was going from um, what was our the, the Rosignol Expert Classic sole to the new full carbon classic sole. So the new full carbon classic sole has an engineered flex in it as well. Um, and so just the weight savings really comes from uh, the sole itself and just the, the new updated build. Uh, the insulation is still the same. Um, and, you know, one thing with Rosignol boots across the board from our, you know, our top level course skate boots all the way down to our entry level 
you know, junior boots, touring boots, backcountry boots, every single one of our boots is heat moldable as well. Cool. That is, so, I don't really get cold feet. Um, I know Rosignol does make over boots, yep. but there are some, there's some people out there that get cold feet and they would put the warmth of the boot ahead of the lightness and the torsional stiffness and, yep. and so on. Um, my thinking is that there are some models that are one or two levels down that have a lot more insulation and are a lot warmer than the um, premium course boots or something along those lines. Yeah, the, I mean, the, even the, the World Cup boots, which are now, so they, that was used to be our second tier boot. Uh, now, kind of the third step down um, has it has definitely has more insulation. Um, it still has, you know, I don't have it here with me, but it still has a very similar carbon cuff to what we had on our previous premium um, and still has really good lateral medial uh, carbon heel counter as well. Um, and we have a carbon insert on the sole. Um, so it's a really, really good performing boot. Definitely has a little bit of a warmer package. Uh, that's also the first level where you see uh, our women's specific fit. Um, so the FW fit, uh, which is actually a narrower heel through the mid midfoot of the of the boot itself. Cool. So as well as a couple other features, you know, a little bit wider uh, top opening of the zipper, things like that, for to accommodate um, a woman's lower calf attachment on their leg than where a men's hits. Um, so just some aspects to really make it a little bit more um, user friendly for the women. And I think in general, uh, I have very narrow heels. So mm -hmm. I'm a little sensitive to this. I think in general, women have narrower heels as well compared to they men. They do. Yep, yeah. yep. So that's why the, the women-specific fit has that narrower heel, narrower heel through the midfoot and then the same width of the forefoot yeah. that you have in the unisex boots. And I think that's great that you do that because if you have a narrow heel and some, other, some companies out there have a reputation for having wider heel, mm -hmm. and it kind of clangs around and you, you lose... Um, some control. I, I, that's how yeah. I feel. I, I have narrow heels and I like having a tight fit around my heel because I feel like I have the best responsivity. You know, I have really good control that way. So, yep. Um, so Jeff, what resources are available to people if they want to learn more about Rosignol products and if they have specific questions that they can't find answers to? Uh, you know, we have an abundance of information at Rosignol.com. Uh, we're actually building out some new pages right now for newer skiers as well. So er everything from, you know, how to choose the right ski, how to dress properly. Uh, we work really closely with the, the PSIA demo team as well. And so we're going to have some instructional videos on there for them. Um, and, you know, really any and all information that you could possibly find. So everything from, you know, the, the basics, like how to get into the sport, where to go. We're going to have a list of all of our touring centers across the country, um, as well as all the individual product information on our product pages in themselves. Uh, and through the website as well, you can ask any question and it goes right to our dealer services team. And, uh, you know, and if, if they happen to be stumped, then they go right to me. <laughs> Is there a, an e-blast or something along those lines that you put out which might address things that are appropriate to the season that maybe people might be interested in, in subscribing to? Uh, yeah, I mean, we have some information on our, on our social web, uh, on our social media pages, uh, for sure on, you know, I mean, on the, the Nordic side, a lot of it, a lot of our, uh, our marketing stuff comes from the race side. Um, so there's a lot of information about that. But this year, we'll actually definitely be having a lot more information on our social media page not, and our nrosinol.com on a kind of a rotating basis 
on a little bit more of that entry level to mid price point range, whether that's backcountry touring or, or performance. Super. Okay. I want to ask you a, a couple more questions um, because I think people might want to, number one, you can impart some wisdom and the other, and then also I think people might want to get to know you a little bit. So first question, okay. <laughs> what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were 18? Wow. Uh, Lay it on us. I, I would say, you know, I, I mean, I, I loved growing up as an Alpine ski racer. Um, but I, once I stopped Alpine ski racing, I moved on to much more endurance related, uh, kind of almost suffer fest type situations that I, I tended to really enjoy and thrive in. And I, I wish I had, I wish I'd been younger to been able to explore, uh, cross-country ski racing, uh, at a much, much earlier age than I did. Hmm. Okay. Um, last question. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Uh, get outside. <laughs> That's it. So, I mean, it's, it, these days, more than ever, I think all of us can recognize the um, the feeling and the, the sensation of being cooped up, especially in the current uh, sit in hurt, uh, well the current pandemic situation. Uh, but really, for me, it's like I, I'm never as happy as I am when I'm outside. And regardless of the weather, I mean, it could be pouring, pouring rain, dumping snow. As long as I'm outside and I'm not stuck inside, I'm I'm a happy camper for sure. I'm, I'm a big believer in there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And any of us who work in the outdoor industry, we have no excuse because we have more than enough. <laughs> yeah, I definitely <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, well, Jeff, thank you. Um, Rossignol, Toko and Rossignol have had a long-standing mutual respect that is, or even cooperation that existed for years. Being in the making skis fast business, I really appreciate having a working relationship with such an exceptional brand and also with great partners such as yourself. So thank you for giving me and the American Nordic Ski Public your time and expertise today. And I hope to see you soon. A anytime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's funny that, I mean, we live 20, way, 20 minutes away from each other and we have to get on a Zoom call to actually see each other. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, thanks for having me. You know, it's, uh, it's, you know, I've always been a huge fan of Toco and um, it's just, it's, you know, it's great to, to get out and uh, say hi to everybody and uh, wish everybody well and stay healthy, stay sane in these crazy times. And uh, we'll, we'll have skiing before we know it. That's all yeah. that matters. Looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much.